Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. As a survivor of invasive breast cancer, whose marriage dissolved as treatment ended, Susan DiLorenzo draws upon her personal journey, as well as her training as a life coach, to provide mindsets and tools to assist others in rebuilding their lives in alignment with their deepest desires. Susan, thank you for coming on today and sharing your story. Thank you, Andrea. It is such a pleasure to be here, and I really feel like I'm in esteemed company uh, whether you're a cancer patient, a survivor, or some beautiful person who's caring for them, what a community we are. So it's such a great pleasure to be here. Oh, I love that you use the word community because I, I feel like there is something about cancer that brings people together, even if it's a different type of cancer. So I, lo- I love that you use the word community. Well, Susan, take us back. What happened? When did it happen? Where did it all begin? I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's been over 20 years. And I know if for those of you who see me, you're going, 20? What were you, 15? Wow. <laughs> uh, no. Well, what were you? I like, was 38 you years 30? old. I was 38. I had an 18-month-old child. I ran around like a nut. I was married. I had just bought this old house with my maid at the time. And I just was so spread thin that I never put myself even on the list. So when I was finally um, going into regular mammograms at the age of actually 35, Andrea, my mother is a cancer survivor also. And the wild thing is she was 38 years old and we ended up with breast cancer in the same breast at the same age. But the first little signal, I was just going in like a chicken with my head cut off. It's just another thing to jam into my schedule and waited in that room with all the others with their, you know, at breast cancer. So we all had our robes closed in front, (laughs) clutching our robes, waiting in the waiting room. It was taking them so long to get to me. And I had a train to um, get to, to pick up my little baby uh, at daycare. And I could care less that I was, you know, it was just one more thing to get through. At this point, I'd been through three or four years of mammograms or it was nothing. And this time they're calling me back in. We need another film. We need another film. And I'm like, oh, come on. And I have a schedule. Come on. I I was detained. I was told there were calcifications in my left breast, which you notice I'm not saying right breast yet, and that I would need a needle biopsy. And I couldn't even think of it. I'm just like, okay, thanks for the info. Got to run. I ran for that train. I made it with seconds to go. I sat on the seat and it all hit me. And I bawled like a baby. I thought about my mother. And she, like I said, is a survivor, but I didn't go there. What I went through was, oh my God, my mom was 18 months old, same age as my child when her mother died. Is my son, she didn't remember her mother, is my son not going to remember me? He won't know how much I love him. 
He won't remember me holding him. I, I just fell apart. I didn't even know what stage. I hadn't even had a biopsy yet, but I just went there all the way to in the grave and forgotten. It took a while. It took a couple of weeks to finally hear, okay, it's calcifications. It could even be zero stage. We're just going to do a lumpectomy. I got a clean margin, which means they got all the cancer in that lumpectomy. I went in for a follow-up appointment with a radiation oncologist, and I was already like the self-expert of reading everything. Oh, they got clean margins. I don't need radiation. And she agreed with me. And I'm like, God, I nailed that. So, so she brings in a medical student. Is it okay if I bring in this student? We're just going to do a regular breast exam. And I'm like, sure, anything for science. Come on in. And, uh, he, you know, was witnessing as she palpated the left breast and no problem. She's palpating my right breast and she gets this look on her face and she keeps touching the same area and looks at me and says, has anybody spoken to you about the lump in your right breast? I'm like, oh my gosh, no. And so she puts my hand on it. It is clearly there. She brings the medical student's hand over too and we're all feeling the lump in my breast. And all I can think of, because this is still my mentality, after the clean, I was just, phew, what was that left one all about? Well, let's see, where was I? Well, now I'm being told I need to schedule another surgery, not a needle biopsy, a surgical biopsy. I'm thinking, I've got a family vacation. I've got a high school reunion. I just don't have time for this. And there was a book out at the moment. So this was the late 90s. There's a book out called Breast Cancer. Let me check my schedule. <laughs> I thought, yeah, you got that right. I managed, I, I refused to um, schedule that surgery until I had had my vacation and family vacation, you know, and, and high school reunion, damn it. You know, I had to have it. <laughs> and so, okay, all right, I'll do the biopsy. It was very, uh, very painful. They didn't put enough numbness in me. So at one point, the surgeon has to cut deeper and he hears me cry out on the table. And I probably shouldn't be telling this story to people. And this is very rare, I should say. So he said, you can feel that? And I said, yes. And tears are coming down my face and he's a little shaken up, I have to say. So they put more, I think it was lidocaine. It doesn't matter. They numbed it out. And we meet later and he says, I'm sorry that happened. I didn't realize we had to go as deep as, as we did. The tissue looked worrisome. And that word stuck with me, worrisome. And my brain wanted to rationalize it. Okay, worrisome means it's definitely, now the one I had, the diagnosis I had before was called ductal carcinoma in situ, which is a very zero stage type um, of calcifications in the breast. And so I'm like, okay, he can definitely see that. That's all it is. He just knows for sure now. That's it. That's what my brain could deal with. That's the story I told myself. So I go back to work thinking, okay, yuck, but okay, probably need another lumpectomy. I don't know. Well, I get the pathology back and I can't even go home to get it. I'm sitting in a conference room at work alone while he's telling me that it's lobular um, cancer and ductal cancer. And uh, we have yet to do a lymph node dissection, but I, I come to learn, yeah, it's in my lymph nodes too. 
And of course I bawl all over again. <laughs> and this one got my mate's attention before we were like, oh, what was that all about? Well, that was crazy. Well, now he's a little nervous too. I had to have a lumpectomy. They didn't get all the margins on that. I had to go back in. My mom is with me at the time, the survivor. And she's not good at handling news at all. And I learned there, we didn't get all of the cancer. You're going to need a mastectomy. And by the way, it's, it, it's in your uh, lymph nodes too. And I am so worried about how I'm going to break it to my mother that I'm barely digesting it myself. And sure enough, I tell the woman and she falls apart and says, oh, Susan, you're such a good person. You're too young to die she has, uh, she had, I should say, um, depression. And so it was a glass half empty kind of person. And here I am, can't digest it myself. I have to make her feel better. I, that was my job growing up, you know? So, all right, I get home. We're okay. We're digesting the news. I have the mastectomy. Uh, there's nothing looking like it's on the chest wall anymore. I have to go for chemo and radiation now. I end up losing my hair by Christmas <laughs> and I've got a wig called the April <laughs> that looks like me. So when I look in the mirror, I may not have eyebrows at this point, but I at least have about the same kind of hair. And my little boy was so sweet. So he was um, just coming on two years old when I began chemotherapy and I was starting to explain, like I was wearing a prosthesis and we called it my fake boob. And to hear it come out of a little two-year-old's mouth, <laughs> fake boob? <laughs> so he really was just a joy. And I felt uh, almost like I didn't get enough of him because I was so sick from the chemo and so focused on oh, who am I in this moment? You know, who am I being here and what can I do to make it okay while I go through it? Because what was I doing up until then? Resisting pretending it wasn't happening to me. And so now I'm full in it, you know, hair loss, chemo, uh, starting radiation at some point concurrently with the chemo that I got pretty darn sick. Uh, just, you know, but I still have, you can hear a goofy sense of humor that I would pull in and try to make myself and others at ease. That was just something that was part of my makeup. But I had to take it a lot more down the spiritual road I was always kind of a spiritual person, but this was a great opportunity to really put it to work and uh, pull in a journal, pull in prayer, read uh, inspiration, uh, listen to beautiful music, uh, watch movies that made me laugh. So I did a lot of things to support myself and still um, enjoy what I could in, in the moment. I want to circle back because I have questions. First one is, why take your mother to the appointment knowing she's a glass half full kind of person? Like knowing that you were actually... Yes. She her. had flown out to take care of me post-mastectomy. You would think, hindsight's twenty twenty <laughs> on that one. Uh, and she was doing great with being such a support to me that I just was like, oh my God. And I thought, oh, she's gone through this. Well, she didn't go through it as badly. Apparently she didn't have the same diagnosis I had, but you're right. Looking back, you're like, what are you nuts? You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, I have two sisters 
And one, uh, one is very close to my age. And I was telling her, she's like, oh, God, Susan, she knew exactly <laughs> what I was up against because we've all experienced my mother in different situations. And God, she, you know, you can see she loves us dearly, but she experiences things as if they were happening to her. And there are people like that. And when you're in a moment like that, I mean, I was dazed coming out of there with that information. I don't know how else I could have handled it differently other than, you're right, not having her there. And since you mentioned it in your bio, tell us about your husband. Where was he in all this? Yes. Well, I want to begin by saying many of us marry what we know. And so I've just told you that I grew up with a mom with depression. I wasn't aware of that at the time. We just all rallied around mom and had her and she was great fun. It wasn't like she was just a, a downer all the time. We just didn't know who we were going to get from day to day. So that's what I married. A guy with a great sense of humor, uh, great values, um, but you didn't know who you were going to get from day to day. And often as with growing up, I felt responsible for whatever mood they were in, whatever happened, I was the make everything okay person. But I couldn't do that during cancer. And he really struggled to keep it together for himself, take greater care of our child, make sure the house was running. I had his wonderful mother helping as well. I had neighbors, but he was super stressed and was a glass half empty person. That's what I married. It was like I just inserted myself as a puzzle piece into a different puzzle. He took me to all the chemo appointments. He sat with me. Um, he has a very dark sense of humor that I actually appreciated. We laughed a lot. That was the good side. But yeah, he, by the time, was three months out of treatment. It ended almost a year from the first time I, I found out about the cancer in my left breast. And then I was getting happier and happier. I was told I was cancer free. I wanted to go on trips. I'm not paying attention to the fact that he's still not very good. I'm like, whoopee, I get to live. <laughs> That's where I was at. So we were creating, this is all hindsight too, creating a bigger disparity between us. And I really couldn't tune in to too much right now. I was so focused on my own happiness, my own celebration that I couldn't see how really he was still suffering. So there were little signs, and I want to back up and talk about a couple's counseling that the cancer center offered, couples going through cancer. And at one point he said the shocking statement of, I don't care if I ever have sex again. And at the time I couldn't deal with, he said this in the counseling, but I couldn't deal with it. I was going through chemo and radiation at the same time. I was like, we're going to have to table that one. I was like stunned, but I didn't, I didn't address it. Oh wait, the I in that sentence was you. No, that was him. That was my husband. He did not care. That is a sign of depression right there. Yeah. Uh, so I couldn't pick up on that. I was just having my, my own moment here. But that came back months later when I'm happier and I were sitting on the couch and I'm feeling frisky again. I'm getting a little hair on my head and I go to kiss him on the couch like a sexy kiss. And he pulls away and says, that's enough. And I was like, uh-oh. And yeah, that's enough. I was 
just stunned. I don't know. I know I stopped and probably pulled away and was like, uh, oh, and then maybe a little bit of that conversation from the counseling came back to me. But I approached him the next evening and I said, you know, we've got to get back to where we were. You know, we've really drifted and I really want to work on our marriage. And he's nodding his head as an understanding. And then he says, actually, I think I need to live alone. And I wasn't waiting. Even you would think I'd have expected that, right? And I said, what? What are you talking about? What about that little boy who's asleep up in that room up there? And he said, I already feel guilty enough. Please don't make me feel any guiltier. Now, the sarcastic part of me wanted to say, oh, she's sorry about that, pal. You know, but, but I, I, he was suffering. Okay. He was suffering. I bawled like a baby. <laughs> and I remember the next day I had to go into work. And I was just walking in a daze. I had a corporate financial job and there was a church across the street. And I walked in, music was a big thing for me in church. I grew up singing in the choir. You know, I wasn't so much into the service sometimes because <laughs> it could be really boring, but I always loved the music. And I opened up a hymnal in the back of this church and the words just jumped off the page. I'd never heard this hymn before, but it began, and I hope I can get this right, but if ye just, if ye but trust in God to guide thee, he'll see you through the evil days. And it just went on like this. And of course I cried even more because I was like, oh, that's perfect. <laughs> and so we started talking and he actually offered to remain married to me. But as he put it, I will be a father, but I won't be a husband to you. And I had to say immediately, it just came right up from my soul. I didn't fight for my life to have this for my life. And I, I did appreciate the gesture and I know it tore him apart to leave his child. And it took a year from the time he said that till he actually left the house. So imagine living with someone for almost a year who doesn't want to be married to you. And we didn't have like a separate bedroom and all this, you know, we were sharing the same bed still, but like roommates. And we both loved our child, but it was heartbreaking. And in the meantime, I had this mastectomy and I was going to have, um, reconstructive surgery. And already I, I know this man isn't going to be with me forever. And my mom, do you want to hear a funny story? My mom was supposed to fly in. There was a big snowstorm. She couldn't make it, Andrea. So what do you think the universe was trying to do there? You know, she's not so much of a support. Maybe we'll let her stay home this time. But who did I have? So that meant my husband, had to take care of our child and bring him to daycare. I had a, to be at the hospital at six in the morning. So I call my best friend that night, Michelle, and I let her know what's happening. I say, can I pick you up on the way so that you can be with me when they wheel me into surgery? She said, of course. So I'm driving myself and my friend to my own surgery. <laughs> Luckily, they had valet parking. I didn't have to find my own parking in the hospital. And um, she was wonderful. She was already my friend for so many years. And she was beside me at the gurney, holding my hand, rubbing my forehead and saying, everything's going to be okay. I love you. And I couldn't get that from anybody else at that moment. And I just felt so aligned 
and the grace of God that I had my person. <laughs> and she's still my person to this day, you can imagine. It went fine. I was in the hospital for about four days. It was called a tram flap surgery, whereby they take, in my case, fat and muscle from the belly and they tunnel it up to make a new boob. And the, the benefit is you, if you have a chubby belly, you got a flat tummy now. And I always kid that you got to get something out of the deal here. When they first put it on, you know, it's all stitched on, just like new stitches anywhere on my body. And I had a big one down the middle of me, in the middle, like I called it my equator. And then I looked down. I was so happy to see symmetry. And when we finally took off the bandage, I had to call it Frankenboob. Because <laughs> it's still all stitched on, like I was put together, you know. I eventually called it belly boob because it got a lot cuter. And then they, you know, tattooed on a nipple and all of that. And it matched perfectly. Other professionals, I had the top surgeon in the hospital for cosmetic surgery. And everybody wanted to come in and see my new boob. And we're like, great work, doctor. And I'm like, well, this is encouraging. It's weird. And now I can just walk down between childbirth and this kind of surgery. I could walk down a street naked at this point because every I feel like everybody and their brother has seen any part of me at this point. Um, but yes. Were you, were you at a teaching hospital? Yes. Yes, I was in Boston. And so, oh my gosh, but I had to, you know, snicker at that and just shake my head like, yeah, come on in. Here it is. <laughs> what happened with your husband? Did he eventually, did you guys eventually? Yes, he ways? eventually did. And I have to tell you, living with him was even more toxic knowing he was leaving that I ended up having to have a biopsy done, a lump was found in my left breast. And I'm like, by God, he has to go. <laughs> this cannot keep going on. This is so toxic for me. I Mind-body connection on, is on the mind here. And so I began creating vision boards, visualizing a happy ending for both of us. And he eventually finds a new place to live nearby, can see our son, helps us out in the house. I grit my teeth to have him there for my son, but I was really like, can't we just be? Between growing up and my marriage, it was complete eggshell navigation. And I was a pro at it, but it was exhausting. And I believe it made me sick because I didn't matter in the scenario. It was all about supporting somebody else. Wow. And I love that term. I'm going to steal it. Eggshell navigation. You may. You may. I, I can relate to that. I, I can. I'm the oldest. My mother was an addict, which I didn't really fully understand. Started to toward the end of high school. I always felt responsible for her, for taking care of her, even though she was very high functioning. And I ended up in very similar relationships. And when I was married, the one and only time, I remember this moment, moment, I used to have really severe migraines and it was so bad. We went to the ER. It was so terrible. I collapsed on the floor and I couldn't even articulate what I needed. And of course, the, the, the lights were just killing me, even with sunglasses on. My husband had taken me and I just said, you know, just please fix this. And he said, I don't know what to do. And I'm looking up at him from the floor. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and he, and he's, and he said, 
you're the one who always handles these things. And he was right. Like he was, I was the person, especially when it came to health, who handled those things for everyone, including him. But that moment on the floor in pain, I just, our marriage had been rocky for some time, but I just was like, I can't be with someone who can't be there for me when I need them the most, who, who can't just do simple things like push back with the doctor a little bit, you know, make sure I get seen a little sooner, make sure I'm seen by a doctor and not a nurse practitioner in this particular case. Wow, we are very, very similar. And this is uh, what creates these moments. And do you mind if I plug a book that really helped me um, in the, it was back when I, yeah, I learned about this wonderful book by Ann Sheffield and it applies to alcohol, people, children of alcoholics, anything, because it's so much of this is tied to depression. It's called how you can survive when they're depressed. And she refers to us as depression fallout, the people that walk on those eggshells, that try to keep it together, that beat themselves up when they aren't doing their job or taking the blame when the person's falling apart and just never knowing who you're going to get from day to day. So that book opened my eyes. I didn't, like you were, you were just saying, you weren't fully aware till high school that anything was even actually wrong. I knew the word codependent, but I didn't know it applied to me. And that was an eye opener because I saw that my husband had depression. I didn't see that I grew up with it and that this was the whole journey I'd been on. So I just think that was a big, big, I did get help with a therapist too. I do want to say that was a big, big part of healing from and moving forward after divorce. Good for you. And yeah, we'll definitely put that. I've never heard of that book. So We'll definitely make sure you, you know that's what I mean about grace sometimes you just come up with I I didn't I wasn't looking for this book and I just happened to see it on Amazon or something I'm like that sounds like a book I could use <laughs> there's another one called boundaries have you heard of that one no I'm gonna write that down that's great someone recommended it to me I'll put it in the notes as well I can't remember the author great his first book boundaries he's done all these other ones since that have you know that are very specific but the first book is about Every chapter is about different kinds of boundaries, whether it's with your spouse or your children or your coworkers or your boss. And someone recommended that book to me at least five years ago, and I didn't read it until recently. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> right, right between the <laughs> oh, eyes. Yeah. Wow. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Those are yeah. great. Those types of reads are great. Well, it makes us realize we're not alone in these experiences. Well, Susan, I want to ask you, what was your worst moment in all of it? It was going through chemo, being bald, getting the flu, and feeling absolutely defeated. And I was sobbing in my mother-in-law's arms. And she was such, I got the right mother this time because she can handle it. And she held me like a baby. And I just bawled and bawled and bawled until there was nothing left in there. And then I got a little bit of peace and the love I needed in that moment. That's such a, such a gift she gave you. Yeah. She is a beautiful person. What about your best moment? The end of chemo party in my neighborhood. (laughs) And 
uh, okay, ev- tell us about that. Yeah, <laughs> all the neighbors and my friends showed up in my yard, and my mate at the time um, put it together for me. And he had, we had a cookout. We had games for the kids. I'm still walking around kind of puffy and bald with a cap on my head. <laughs> but I was so happy to see everyone. And it didn't mean I had all my strength back yet, but I had enough enthusiasm to be there and celebrating. And my mate had a little book for people to write in. And on the cover, it said, a woman is like a tea bag. You never know how strong she is until she's in hot water. And that's a quote by Eleanor Roosevelt. And at the end of the party, I thanked him. And he said, oh, believe me, I haven't done much for you. And I didn't know at the time that meant that he had cheated on me earlier. (laughs) Guilt can really creep in when you've, you know, the person is facing a life-threatening illness and you haven't been very straight. Everybody. So is, this, yeah. is this the husband? Or yes. Someone new. Okay. Yeah. So this is my husband who hadn't left the home yet, but gave me this party. Hadn't learned yet that he wanted to leave. So I didn't know what he meant by, oh, believe me, I haven't done that much. In my eyes, he did, you know, and the biggest favor he did was actually leaving. I would have yeah. held on to that vow. And I think I'd, I wouldn't be sitting in the seat right now. I think I'd be in the, in the spirit world. <laughs> What is the one thing you wish you had known at the beginning of your cancer journey? And I'll let you define beginning, whether it's where it was the left breast, you know, and didn't seem like it's such a big deal or whether it was the right breast. It's something I use um, when I coach my clients. I don't think I mentioned that I am a transformational life coach and that I help people coming out of life altering adversities. You can see why that's a pet passion of mine. I didn't know that I didn't have to just focus on the fear and the doubt Mm. and the worry. And I use the idea of having, here we have two hands and in the left hand, it's so easy. We've been conditioned to worry something because we think we're addressing what would I do? How would I react? I've got to prepare for this. But in this other hand, I say, is the desired outcome. This one hasn't come true yet. All right, let's create one over here that says, this is what I would love. Complete, complete health, peace, fun, a great life ahead. What would that look like? I'm going to imagine that. And there's that wonderful book by Bernie Siegel, Love, Medicine, and Miracles, that talks about studying the people that had this attitude and not this attitude. He wanted to know who survived and what were they doing? What was their mindset? What were they doing differently? So I would go back and and show that to myself. I eventually got on board with that because I was reading inspirational material that got me thinking, okay, I'm on a healing journey. What does that look like for me? I'm going to complete health. It's a journey. And I kept holding in mind, not right away, (laughs) but I kept holding in mind what it was going to look like for me to be in complete health and happiness and We have the facts, right? We have facts of diagnosis and what's staring us in our home, you know, whether we have supportive mates or not, but then we have the truth of who we are and thinking about 
as Wayne Dyer says, you can't make your fingernails grow. They just grow, right? <laughs> so we've got life force energy inside of us that's greater than any circumstance. And when we align with that, which is in the thinking, you will witness such grace and being able to handle what is in front of you. The other word I like to use is the word circumstance. And let's divide it in half. Circum, the circle around you. Stance is where you're standing in that circle. You're not the circle. You're standing looking at life all around you. And now what would you like to see next? That's in your right hand. Wow. Well, I do have to say I've read a lot of Medicine and Miracles and someone actually gave me the book when my sister was diagnosed and I reached out to Dr. Siegel and he responded. Did you? Oh, how cool. Change, and it was, yeah, it was, it was really, really helpful. And he just reminded me that, and I say this all the time now that people are more than a number. They're not just a number. Yes. Because my sister was diagnosed in stage four and, and she didn't make it. And, and she, you know, was, was given numbers and I kept asking him not to give me numbers. And so I have a lot of respect for him. And then the second part to what you said, which is probably getting a little woo woo, even for me. I'm, I'm woo woo. Go ahead. I know. Well, I got that. I picked up on that. (laughs) (laughs) I like the woo. You know, in the law of attraction, one of the things they say is to let go of the want and the need and to focus on what you said, how are you going to feel when you get there? And I find for me personally, and I was just having this discussion with, with my woo-woo friend the other day, with certain things in my life, I can totally do that. I can, I know what, what it would feel like, or at least I can bring up that emotion. But there are other things in my life because I truly have never experienced them before. Mm. It's really hard. Yes. It's hard for me. And it doesn't seem like any amount, I, I've been doing vision boards for, for over a decade. It doesn't seem like any amount of vision boards. I journal every day. It's, it's something I personally am just working on because if you don't know, if you've never experienced something and you don't know how that feels, then it's hard to kind of live in that feeling. But in other aspects of my life, I've been able to do it. I think that's normal. I can fall apart with my mother in Alzheimer's now. And, you know, certain people, my aunt has stage four pancreatic cancer and she doesn't want to know her numbers. And she's been around for over two years now, not knowing what her staging is and all of that. She didn't want to know. She's doing some amazing protocols and I am just amazed. It's a more often than not game. We did talk about this before I hit record, but I don't know your answer. I'm excited to hear it. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? Yes. Thank you for asking that question. I would love to see a fuller array of available protocols. I feel like we're so limited in Western medicine. And even in my own journey, what helped me so much through chemotherapy, especially, and and radiation was, and this isn't about the cure for cancer, this was about making myself feel better, was acupuncture and Reiki. I would be so sick, nauseous, sick, and horrible head from um, chemotherapy. And that evening, I had two Reiki, each time, had two Reiki practitioners come in and work on my body so that by the end of the hour, I was asleep on their bed. 
that never happened with Ativan, let me tell you. <laughs> um, so that's, that's one thing. And the acupuncture um, moved toxins through my organs. It yeah. gave overall immunity boost and it helped with the nausea as well. So why don't we hear more about these things? They're out there. You can find the information, but why don't we have the meeting of East and West or um, holistic and have a full conversation so people can say, that's for me. You make sense to me. This is resonating with me. I'm going to do the research too. I think we, we take ourselves out of the equation when we should be putting ourselves center stage, right? Be the director doesn't mean you have to research all the scientists. I actually recommend not reading all about your disease. Okay. <laughs> Get enough information to know what their, the, you know, the motive, the, the um, intention is for the healing and, and the nature of it. So when you do your visualization, you can put those little love bombs all over your <laughs> cells, wherever they are. Um, that would be my wish is let's go full spectrum healing. It's about not living your old life anymore. It doesn't fit you anymore. And that's why it's so wonderful to build on this elevated platform of awareness. And I'm working on a book right now, Andrea. I'm at the last section of the second round of edits. Uh, it's called Pulling the Gems from Adversity. And it shares my experience, but also my work as a life coach and how we go through stages of holding firm in a storm taking a kind glance backward to pull out the wisdom, pull out those gems, build anew. I give ways of looking and building anew in life. I highly recommend a life coach for this. And then not everything can come with you. We can't take resentment and fear and low self-esteem and all these other things that we just took for granted and thought was part of our operating system. So we do a little closet cleaning on that. And then we advance boldly. That's the final section of my book. I can't wait to get it out there. I am at the stage of getting it to the publisher, I'd say within the next couple of months. And then from there, I imagine it'll just be up and ready to go electronically and hard copy. All right. So are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire question? Yes. All right. Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Beach boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Beatles. What is one word that best describes you? I would say enthusiastic. I like it. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? The Wind by Cat Stevens. I think one person has said Cat Stevens before, but not that song. I, I, I want to make a playlist. Oh, would that be kind of cool? <laughs> uh, what, what is the last meal you want to eat? My mom's crab cakes. Oh, that's not good. And the last person or people you want to see? My husband and my son. So you did get remarried. Oh, yes. He is wonderful. Ah. <laughs> I'm ah, glad we could throw awesome. that in there. Yes, he's fabulous. We've been together for almost 10 years now. Oh, that's wonderful. And the last words you will speak. Thank you, God. And aside from Cancer U, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? So be sure to tell us how people can get a hold of you and also this uh, wonderful 
launch pad session. Tell us what that's all about. Yes. It's just 45 minutes with me. It's free. And it's a wonderful place to get started on getting clarity on how you want to move forward and what still might be holding you back. It is such a valuable session. I would say it's worth about two, my time. It's worth like $225. But I love doing these. And it's just a great way to find out what is it like to work with a life coach? What's something I can do to advance my life? So that's my favorite. And you can um, email me at Susan at SusanDiLorenzo.com. Again, hop onto that website. You're going to find blogs from me. You'll, you'll find other interviews I've had. Um, it's, it's just a great resource to get to know me. And if you feel a resonance, then go ahead and reach out. Thank you so much for offering that. We will have the links in the show notes and the workshop notes. I just really resonate with your story, not because I've personally had cancer, but because of your background yeah. and how you handled and had to deal with your mother and your family. And I just I really appreciate you coming on today and sharing your story. Thank you, Andrea. It's been just so easy and fun and delightful to be here with you. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.